our tradition is we do not wait for others to save us. No, this is a disempowering message. You guys, what the F is going on here? And people were not happy with that message I had. And that's when I really started to question like the integrity of my profession. It started with race. Hello. Hi. Welcome back. I know that I said that I would be back before now and I intended to be. Um, And I'll update soon on what's been going on. But um, wow, it's snowing. Wow. That is great. It has been so warm. So strangely warm. It's been like in the 50s. Um, That it's really nice to see some snow. Some seasonally appropriate snow. Um, So I'm going to keep this short so I can let my dog go outside because she is a snow dog. Um, But I'm very excited to share my conversation with Tava. Uh, Tava Johnstone, you may know her from Instagram or from Substack. She is a prolific writer and poster. She writes a lot and I'm so impressed with her. I'm so impressed with her clarity and her, um, she really, really clearly has a purpose in, in what she shares and in how she shares it and it's very inspiring to me someone who feels currently mildly purposeless um but you may know her from instagram as neurocurious therapist she just changed her handle to rebel parents which is pretty cool um but i'm going to let her kind of um, introduce herself and explain um her stance as a as a licensed clinical social worker on the ideological capture that she sees and has experienced in our culture as a therapist and as a mother. Um, She's going to be a lot more articulate than I am. So I'm just going to let her um, let her talk to you instead of talking to you about what she's going to talk to you about. Um, And before we get into it, I just want to say, and I, I just need to say this while, um, while this podcast is still new, even though technically it's been months and months and months, it's, it's new in that it's just the third episode. Um, I am podcasting through Substack. Substack is the platform that it all feeds out from. So you may be listening to this through Substack because you get my emails and you just clicked on the play button and you're listening to it through the website or the Substack app. Or you may be subscribed and listening to this through iTunes or Spotify or anywhere else that you listen to podcasts. Um, If you enjoy these podcasts and these podcast episodes, please consider subscribing to my Substack. If you have not already, you can subscribe for free. You can subscribe as a paid subscriber, which supports me and my work and this podcast. Um, And if you have subscribed to the podcast, you will be notified of new posts and episodes in your email, um, as well as through whatever podcast app you may have subscribed through. And if you become a paid subscriber, you will also get the audio Um, you will get a private podcast feed with all of the audio from my posts. So I record the audio of my posts for my paid subscribers. And I also have uh, purely paid posts. So posts that are behind the paywall altogether, as well as conclusions and sections of, um, of posts that are just for paid subscribers. So those are my thank yous, thank yous to 
paid subscribers. Um, and it really does help, um, especially in between, uh, in between book ideas. I had a dream last night that I was presenting, I was pitching to a publisher. He was an old white haired man. For some reason I was pitching to him my third book idea. But before I got to the third book idea, I was giving him kind of the overview, you know, what you put in the proposal. My dog is right next to the microphone and she has been groaning a lot and I've had to stop a lot and re-record. Um, but all right. Okay. But um, I, I was giving him like the rundown of my previous books and my previous um, career to kind of like ramp up to what this third book idea was going to be and what my pitch was. And I, I woke up before um, before I was able to hear what Dream Caroline thought her third book was going to be. So I was pretty disappointed in that. I would have loved to have known. Oh, whoops! Well, would have loved to have known what it would have been. Anyway, it's really really helpful to have your support as a writer in this crazy world. Um, so I just want to put that out there. And. Before I share the conversation with Teva, I want to quickly talk about a sponsor for this podcast, Microbalance Health Products. Now, you may have heard me talk about them in reference to my mold scare that I went through last summer. I thought I had a way bigger mold problem than it turns out I had, but while I was waiting for the test to come back to tell me how bad my mold problem was, a mold expert recommended I use microbalance health products, which can actually reduce the amount of spores in the air and on surfaces and on your upholstery and in your clothes and linens. Because when you have a big mold problem, the spores get everywhere and then it becomes really, really hard to avoid exposure, especially if you're sensitive to mold. And the great thing about these products is you can use them whether you have a small mold problem like I had or a big mold problem like I was worried that I had. They will improve the air quality of your home. They will lower the mold spore and mycotoxin count no matter what situation you're dealing with. So if you have any worry that you're going through a mold, if, you, if you're going through a mold saga like I was, um, they gave me a lot of peace of mind. So I will link to them in the show notes. You can use the code Caroline to get 10% off your order. Um, and I highly recommend the company and the products. Okay, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Teva. Teva, welcome to the podcast. I am so, so, so happy to be talking to you. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I was trying to remember earlier when I started following you sometime last year, and I feel like I forget what subject you were posting on that. I was like, oh, I love her. I don't remember what it was at the probably time. Cancel something. Cancel <laughs> yeah, culture. That's probably maybe. what it was. That's probably what it was. Yeah. Cancel culture introduces us to a lot of cool people, like speaking Just, out against cancel culture. Right. You're like, okay, I can, I can be safe with this person in mm -hmm. my online world. Yeah. They're not going to be looking out for all the reasons that they hate me. Yeah. 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 So will you tell everyone who does not follow you yet what you primarily do and are doing in the world as your job and also online? Yeah. So I am a licensed clinical social worker. 
in the state of California and um, LCSWs, we call ourselves, we can do a whole lot of different things. Um, many of us work in private practice psychotherapy. So I had a child-focused private practice for some time. Um, even before I got my license, I worked for other people's child private practices. Um, and then with the pandemic going virtual, it became increasingly hard to see kids. Mm. Seeing kids virtually is like herding cats. It is so hard. Oh, I bet. I bet. Yeah. So as soon as I had the freedom to make the choice about who I was going to see, um, I decided to pivot and focus more on parents. So now I actually, I'm not doing much clinical work. I'm doing more consulting and coaching with parents mm -hmm. and providing education. So parents can kind of take that information and really help their own kids. Right. I'm, I'm focused on the preventative aspect before things reach the level of this is a real mental health concern. And now my child needs a therapist. Right. So I was a child therapist. And yeah. so it's coaching parents. And I also, I mean, I've seen coaching on, I'm sure tons of different things related to mental health, but also a focus on homeschooling as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, so that's... cool. I love your homeschooling posts. They're Thank so you. inspiring. I don't Thank have kids, you. but if I did, I would be trying to do what you were doing. Thank it's you. So, it's so nice. It's such my, it's my happy place. It energizes me. It feels really important and positive mm -hmm. as opposed to some of the other things that I talk about that are also important, but they feel really dark. Yes. Um. So yes, I help parents figure out logistics on how to homeschool. Mm -hmm. If they are modern moms, they have careers, maybe it's just not in their temperament or their child's temperament to be at the dining table doing like traditional, what you think of as homeschool, which is kind mm -hmm. of an older model. Um, so I help parents figure all that out. And I also help parents kind of explore how homeschooling and unschooling might benefit their children who are more intense, spirited, autistic, ADHD. Some people use the word neurodivergent who don't fit well into that traditional school mold. Right. And, and, and these kids can really thrive outside of traditional schooling. So I help parents figure all that out. It's research-based, um, it's, it's logistics and it's very positive. It's like, let's help these kids thrive. We don't have to have them. We don't have to dim their light in this traditional schooling environment. What I love about it is that it's in this, like you said, in this very positive way, it's very subversive. Like it's, it's, it's kind of shocking. I, I'm sure there are a lot of people who are like, whoa, really? Like, is that really something that we can do, but, and it also, yeah. but it also makes so much sense. There's this like feeling of freedom of this. I wish that I had that. Like, I wish that, you know, I wish yeah. that that was, I wish that it was more normal. This, yeah. Like, the quote unquote unschooling. Right. Yeah. It's actually, it's very subversive, mm -hmm. um, which is, I think part of why I'm attracted to it. Mm -hmm. It's very <laughs> counterculture. Right, right. Um, Cause if you think of the early homeschooling pioneers, 
they were they were anti-mainstream. Right. They were anti-coercion. It started with the Catholic moms, the Catholic parents who are like, oh, no, wait, we don't want to do this, this mainstream version of like indoctrinating our kids. We want to like, we want to raise our kids aligned with our values mm-hmm. and we're willing to do whatever it takes to get there. And they fought hard legally. I'm about to interview um, the daughter of one of the early pioneers on my own podcast. Whoa. They worked their, you know, their asses off legally to make, to, to make it pass as a law. Wow. And then right after the Catholic parents came the hippie moms uh-huh. and they were like the sixties, seventies hippies mm-hmm. who were so, you know, they're not this mainstream corporate stuff that the social justice mainstream stuff, they were truly counterculture. They were like back to the land moms, right? Farming, um, home birthing. So, you know, there's a, there's a real subversive tradition in this movement, right? A real questioning of um, values and institutions right. that many just kind of take for granted as like, well, of course, this is the way you do things. Right. And we're kind of like, oh, really? Right. No? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so okay. So that leads us into this whole other part of you, especially online. I mostly see you online, your Substack. Mm-hmm and your Instagram, and you are doing this on many levels. You are questioning what we are doing as a culture right now. And I'm curious, when have you always had that perspective or did you have an evolution? Um, and I know that it's in different, like there are different categories here. So maybe it's been different for different aspects of your life, yeah. but I'm just really curious what this journey has been like to this person who's willing to kind of speak up on all of this. Yeah. Okay. So I was raised in a progressive family. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandparents had very like classically liberal values, civil rights. Um, and then they raised a generation that was more progressive. And so that's my mom. Mm-hmm. Um And this idea of questioning kind of mainstream is it's in my blood. I mean, progressive truly means like, we're going to go past that. We're going to try to progress to something else. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, I was raised with activists. Um, my mom has been very active in like farm workers rights, um, prison reform, anti-death penalty, Amnesty International, just all the things. Mm-hmm. Um, my uncles, my aunts, like everybody was involved in what I kind of consider old school social justice activism, mm-hmm. old school lefty values that were more anti-establishment. Right. Um, and more for like the workers and for like real material gain, not this virtue signaling stuff of today. Mm-hmm. So that has been in my blood. It's in my family. It's my culture. I was mostly raised in a secular family, but like our faith, if you will, was very, I guess, political. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. 
at my Thanksgiving dinners, all politics, all the time mm-hmm. <laughs> on the left. One of my aunts, she's deceased now, but Sabina Virgo is her name. And she was a prominent, prominent, like a nationally known leftist socialist activist. Mm-hmm. And so from the time I was a toddler, I was just listening to these conversations about um, culture and society and politics and activism. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, I dabbled in my 20s with socialism, like a, a lot of people kind of do, especially I'm in California. Mm-hmm. It's kind of right. like, it's just a rite of passage. Right, sure. Everybody does socialism. Everybody does Buddhism. Right. And these are just things we dabble in as we mature. Um, so I did the historic marches downtown LA against the war in Iraq. I did the the women's, you know, reproductive rights marches. I did all of that. Then, um, you know, I, so then I pursued a, a career. I was a hairdresser. And while I was a hairdresser, I studied black studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. My professors were black Marxists, radical black Marxists, internationally known. Um, and that's just been kind of my my tradition, right? But it was always about like material gain, real change, not this not this conformist corporate virtue signaling stuff that that I see today in social justice movements. Right. So I went on to get a graduate degree in social work. Um, I followed the tradition of my mom, who's a social worker. And then I joined our national organization. I won't say the name. People can figure it out. But I joined our national organization in 2020. Mm. Oh, (laughs) right. In the summer. In the summer. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Good times, right? Yes. Yes. (laughs) And we have a, we have a private forum. Mm -hmm. Essentially, it's a bunch of professionals, a bunch of therapists, social workers, Social workers have a very strong activist history. Social justice is written in our code of ethics. It's not something trendy for us. It's something that we really believe in. Like I said, the old school social Mm -hmm. justice. Um, So picture the scene. It's summer 2020. 100,000 social workers have access to this private forum And we are going back and forth on the George Floyd stuff, the Black Lives Matter stuff. How much should we bring into the clinical office? Should we be allowed to wear a Black Lives Matter shirt in our office? I mean, we're all heavily debating our ethics and Mm -hmm. it was very healthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It felt like, it felt like imagine being in Paris at a coffee shop (laughs) choose your era, choose your Uh historical era. And they're like these scholars who are really passionate and they're debating ideas. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. this is important, right? Right. And at the time I was very, I just blindly followed the, the, like the lefty narrative because that was all I knew. And I firmly believed in the principles. Mm -hmm. And then as time went on and I was very active on this forum and very active with the organization. Mm-hmm. I served on numerous um, volunteer positions, 
the leadership constantly was asking me to be involved in different projects. It was like my world for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Um, I smiled because I even had like a romantic relationship with mm-hmm. someone like who I mm-hmm. met through it the It was forum. your world. It was, it your was my world. It was yeah. my social community. Mm-hmm. Then as time went on, I started to see things be- become more and more coercive, more and more silencing of different ideas. So people would bring up ideas that were more um, like classically liberal, if you will, more civil rights movement, you know, Martin Luther King ideas of a shared humanity, um, free speech, because we want to hear different ideas. Because What a concept, right? What a concept, <laughs> right? And that's when I started to have the, the red flag started to go off for me, Particul- particularly with the censorship of the free speech, mm-hmm. the eagerness to silence good faith ideas, good faith scholarship. I had peers that were referencing actual revered scholars being shut down. Right. And that's when I was like, holy shit, what is this? So uh, again, I was raised on Noam Chomsky, Howard Zinn, the ACLU. These were all voices for free speech, right? Freedom of expression. And it was understood that free speech is central to a functioning, healthy society. We do not silence ideas just because we don't agree with them. We do not silence ideas because they make us uncomfortable. So I started to become vocal on the forum about my reservations. And I started to to bring in Black scholars because I'm very aware of how the identity points, how it works, where like we listen to certain voices. Certain voices are welcome. Other voices are not. And it's like, if you want to play that game, I will. I can play that game. So I started to bring in Black scholars who had a message of, of um, we, we, Black people, are not victims. We don't wait around for white people to save us. Because these ideas from D'Angelo, Robin D'Angelo, were like, the way we make the world better is white people confess their sins, essentially. It's very religious. It's Mm -hmm. very religious. Mm -hmm. And it's also, it amplifies white supremacy because it says that we have to wait for white people to feel okay about us. Right. And to to navel gaze and reflect on their own wrongdoings. And that will make our condition better. That will save the world. It's like this white savior concept. Right. And most social workers are white, just so you know. They're white, liberal, middle-class women. Right. Um, And so I'm just like, hold up. (laughs) This is not our tradition. 
Our tradition is we do not wait for others to save us. No, this is a disempowering message. You guys, what the F is going on here? And people were not happy with that, that, that message I had. I mean, many were, and of course they messaged behind the scenes right? because they don't want to be seen. That's the scary part. And that's when I really started to question like the integrity of my profession. Hmm. It started with race and it was devastating, Caroline. It was devastating because that was talk about identity. It was this huge part of who I was that I earned. It was an identity that I earned, not one that I selected from a list. Right. You know, and these were my people. And then I saw my black peers being fragile, saying, this message hurts my feelings. I'm going to press the delete button and make it disappear. Because unlike Instagram, where like you have to press a button and then the robots review it, or maybe real people review it on our forum, the minute someone pressed the button, it was gone. How does that work? So anyone can just get rid of anything at any time? Yes. Whoa. We're all social workers. That's the one criteria to be there. And anyone can get rid of anything at any time. So everyone's a moderator, essentially. Everyone's a moderator. And then there's like a, once those messages are flagged, then a real person reviews them and they might be released back out into the world in a couple weeks, couple months. Whoa. So you really genuinely were being censored and no one was even able to see what you had to say at a certain point. Right. A few people would see it and then whoever saw it, it made them unhappy. They just press a button. I wouldn't know, you know, nobody knows who it is. Right. But when they started censoring bell hooks, I was like, you guys are deranged. I don't know who censored it. I still don't know to this day, but when they were censoring bell hooks, messages of empowerment, black empowerment, messages of, hey, wait a minute. I don't know if the police are our number one problem. Maybe literacy is our number one problem. Maybe we're tearing each other down. Those messages were not allowed. So I was just shocked. I mean, like truly heartbroken. I bet. Yeah. Um, Then I started to notice it shift towards gender. And at that time, I think I had joined Instagram because I was doing autism advocacy on Instagram. So this is like 2021 at this point? Yeah. Okay. We're we're like in 2021 now. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm starting to notice the gender stuff happen because we were talking about some of the abortion um, restrictions that were popping up in different states. Mm -hmm. And I noticed the policing of language Mm -hmm. start to creep on in that not only women have abortions. And I was like, oh, whoa, like, that's what you got from my message. Here I am trying to like... Uh, talk about self-determination. That's a major social work ethic is self-determination. Mm-hmm. Um, and you found that one thing. 
So my eyes started to open to that. Mm-hmm. Then, um, then yeah, I started to explore the topic of gender deeper because when someone tells me I can't say something, right? <laughs> you know, I'm not allowed to think that way. Mm-hmm. I read it as like, okay, thought police. Thanks for the invitation. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to go deeper into the topic and I'm going to start peeling back the onions and I'm going to talk about it even more. Right. But I was pretty scared to talk about gender because I learned quickly that that, that gender was the sacred cow. Right. Yeah. For that very reason, I haven't really spoken about it at all. Yeah. And it's partially because I've had enough drama. (laughs) I've had enough drama in other areas that I'm like, why would I add one more today, you know? And also because I, I, I don't trust myself to articulate what I, I I don't think I have really come to very eloquent conclusions. I feel like I would just almost let down the, I don't want to say the cause because that's not necessarily how I feel, but I don't think I would really do a very good job, which is one of the reasons I'm excited to talk to you because I have seen you do a very good job in just even beginning to question these things that we're now not allowed to question. And also because I was coming from a very liberal view where I just wanted people to be happy and to feel accepted and to be accepted and to be able to live their truth. And, you know, that was something that seemed very noble and important to me. Um, and so the questioning of it was, was hard for me too, because I just wanted to be the person who was like, of course, of course, whatever you say, I'll call you whatever you want. Um, and, and just kind of like taking things at face value. Mm -hmm. Um, and there had for me as well, there's been the, the kind of like, I I didn't know why I didn't want to put my (laughs) my pronouns on my Instagram, it almost started there. I was like, I don't know why I don't want to do this, but I, I really don't want to do this. Yeah. Um, and I kind of left it at that for uh-huh. a while mm-hmm. um, and just sort of listened like on, on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you know, it's become more and more and more contentious and dogmatic and, um, I don't even know how to describe it, but I also feel like it's like really, just really come up. Like it's, it's in the past year really that I feel like yeah. it's like, it's just, you, it, it's like a, it, it's kind of what happened in 2020 with racism, where it was like, you're with yeah. us or against us, like yeah. state your opinion, like who, who, what kind of a person are you? I yeah. feel like that's kind of happening with gender. Yeah. It's really gained like a, just a ton of momentum. Yeah. And speaking of pronouns, I was the pronoun person. I had my pronouns everywhere. Mm -hmm. I loved it. Mm -hmm. I had my pronouns in my bio, on Instagram, on LinkedIn. Um, I think I had it in a signature on the forum that I'm talking about because I Mm -hmm. liked writing she, like it felt fun. Like, oh, you know. (laughs) And then I started to question like, what is this really about? And I think that it, I think that for me also, okay, so my mom, she's very intellectual and she's like a history buff. So I grew up 
with books everywhere, her books of things she's interested in, all her documentaries, all her plays. And I learned about, you know, the Salem witch trials, right? The McCarthy era. Mm-hmm. These these stories and lessons about society are in my blood. Like this is what I grew up with. Other people grew up with religion. They know prayers. They know the Bible. Like this is what I grew up with. This is what was modeled for me. So when I started to see parallels of what felt like, like, holy crap, this is Salem. This is 17th century Salem right now. You know, this is the McCarthy era. You're asking me to, you're asking me to declare something. You're trying to compel my speech. You want me to, you want me to um, say my loyalty out loud against the communists, you know, back then McCarthy. And I'm like, uh, hold up. This is not feeling right. And with adults, I am so live and let live. Like I am, I know people call me all kinds of things. I am not transphobic. I'm definitely not a turf. I hardly even know my feminism, like the different <laughs> waves. I was asking right. my followers about it. Like with adults, I am so live and let live. Self-determination is a really important, um, like liberty that I that I value. Mm -hmm. But when it started to creep into the kids, that, that for me was like, I can't be silent anymore. I was getting annoyed with the, with the erasure of the word woman and mother from adult conversations about female body experiences like abortion. I was getting annoyed with that. Mm -hmm. I'm someone who it took me a really long time to become a mother. I went through a ton of heartache and I like really cherish that title of mother. Like it makes me want to cry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I noticed people policing my use of mother, I was like, wait a minute here. What's happening? Not okay. But it was still just the adults. Right. Then I started to hear about it creeping into the kids then I started to hear about autistic kids overrepresented at the gender clinics, which are medical clinics, mm-hmm. overrepresented for their number in the population versus their number at the gender clinics. And autism, autistic kids, they're the vulnerable population that I serve. And in my code of ethics, I'm required to speak up for vulnerable populations. Mm-hmm. So that is what has really grounded me and given me the the courage to speak is that I have a framework. My framework is my code of ethics. My framework is my my upbringing, which I believe to be right and just. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had so many conversations with my mom who is firmly on the left and firmly against all of this stuff with the virtue signaling and the childhood gender transitions. Um, So I've really had like a secure base, you know, in child development, we talk about the secure base is what gives kids the, um, the ability to take risks. 
and then come back to their secure base. And so I have that. And that's helped me. Um, I'd love to hear about what you are seeing with the kids, what, what your concerns are. So internationally, particularly um, the UK, because they've done real studies, the US is like barring studies, independent reviews. So based on what we know from the UK's independent reviews of Tavistock, which I think is the world's largest gender clinic, we know that autistic kids in, in one study, it was like 45% of the the youth receiving um, gender medicine were autistic. And so that, that really set off my red flags because I know that autistic kids are a vulnerable population due to the traits of the disability. And I, I started to learn about how, how quickly they're fast-tracked in the UK, there's a long waiting list for treatment, but once they like enter the system in, in the US as well, it's a fast moving train. And I know from being on the inside that most clinicians know, I, I want to cuss, but I'm not going to cuss. You um, can, you okay. can. <laughs> most clinicians know fuck all about autism. Mm. So I don't trust that these autistic youth are receiving high quality care. Right. So that was my biggest concern and why I started to dabble into like talking to parents. Then with, with non-autistic kids, just your classic non-conforming kids, your free spirited kids who don't fit into boxes they are being fed ideas at school and in therapy offices that if they don't fit into these stereotypical BS 1950s ideas, maybe they're not a girl. Maybe they're not a boy. That is the part that I can't wrap my head around. It That's the thing that feels like such a regression. Yeah. That all of a sudden... And the other thing is there's this kind of inconsistency with gender doesn't exist at all, or gender is so specific that if you don't fit into the box of what you are supposed to be as a woman, then you are maybe not a woman at all. It doesn't actually make that those two things don't make sense together. Yeah. They don't make sense. It's because the two theories, the two main theories that, are the, the the most vocal and the most influential in um, what we see online and in schools and in ideological camps, they are actually at odds with each other. That's why they don't make sense. <laughs> right. So the gender identity theory says you're born with a, like a gender imprint in your brain, in your soul. Your brain is gendered. And it might not match your body, kind of like a birth defect, hmm. like your brain, um, oops, you have a female brain, your body's male, let's fix this. So that's gender identity theory. It's very medical. It's very, um, it's very friendly to, to medical interventions. 
to change the body to match the brain. Then there's queer theory, which is like gender is fluid. Gender is a performance. Gender is a behavior. Um, Gender doesn't have to have anything to do with your material sexed body. And gender is something that we play around with. True queer theorists are they're um, suspicious of medical science, suspicious of medical technology. True queer theorists are not interested in, in altering the body to match these feelings of gender. Mm. And so it's like queer theory when left with adults can actually be, you know, playful, right? Um, think of like the seventies with like the rock stars, like they were wearing makeup and you do know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, or like the eighties, like boy, George, like these men were still men, right. But they were playing around with their gender performance. Right. That's queer theory. We were never asked to not think of them as male though. The legal system never, never changed their recognition of them as male. They were never allowed into the female locker room simply because they feel feminine that day. Mm -hmm. So now there are these legal implications and the implications with kids are that if you put the, if you, if you introduce these ideas to kids, and you teach them as gospel to children, which they are not gospel. They are niche academic theories mm-hmm. that we're allowed to reject. The implications today are that they might go down a medical path. Right. They might become so confused and distraught. I see these, I see the parents of these kids. I hear from my followers who are autistic adults who say, Oh my good Lord. I'm so glad this wasn't around when I was coming up. I don't know where I would be right now. Right. So I support parents raising their kids, how they want to raise their kids. If you want to teach your six-year-old all about queer theory, like go for it. That's your role as parent. And it's not my place to infringe on, on, parental rights Mm -hmm. and parental values, but you cannot bring that into the school and teach that as fact to other people's children. You cannot insist that I, as a therapist, believe this. I have a freedom of my own beliefs, my own conscience. I can respect your culture, but I don't have to join your culture. And currently what's happening is therapists are being asked to join the culture. Right. We are being labeled as all kinds of horrible things. Therapists are defending their license to their board. If we don't say the prayer, Caroline. Right. And this is where I'm like, this is McCarthyism. This is, this is Salem. This is not okay. And and these are not the values that I was taught are right. These are not our constitutional, liberal, democratic values. Because you're not free to disagree. Right. And choose a different way or and and even just state your <laughs> case. Yeah. Yeah. 
you're, there's a lack of freedom. There's this really strong coercive, what feels to me like this hammer. And there's also an anti-intellectualism that really concerns me because we are graduate degreed professionals. And depending on when you went to school, we were taught to question theories, to pick them apart, that that is good academic practice. You don't have to agree with anyone's theory. Are you kidding me? You just have to argue it well. Mm -hmm. You can't just make up BS, right? Right. But now we're being, now we're being told, no, you can't question this. And that's what's really, it's anti-intellectual, it's anti, anti-liberty, anti-democratic, I, I would argue. And the, the fallout, as you're saying, are children right now. And really, yeah. and, and as you said, it's, it's the, the threat of the medicalization, the threat of the sterilization that may be regretted in five years. That's the yeah. thing. That's where I kind of, you know started seeing the, the danger because before I was like, well, you know, this isn't my, this isn't my battle, right? Like I, I'm not a parent, I'm not queer. So I'm just, I'm just going to not get involved. You know, I'm just going to like, let people do whatever they want. And I see the danger and the threat of the confusion in a child, the culture that then fast tracks and convince convinces the child that they will be happier if they go down this route and then the potential for regretting that and having a life altering decision. And it's a very heavy medical burden. Yeah. Even if, even if they never regret it, it's a very heavy medical burden that I think adults should be making Mm -hmm. rather than children. Mm Mm-hmm. And even if they never medicalize, to me, it's cruel to tell girls that if they like to climb trees and dissect bugs, that they might not be girls. Not not just cruel, sexist. Let's yeah. call it what it is. It's sexist. It's sexist to tell more feminine boys that, hey, maybe they're not a boy since they want to put on that tutu. It's very homophobic because these kids, if you leave them alone, the majority of them will be gay. Mm -hmm. The majority of them will drop a cross sex identification or a transgender identification. And the majority of them will be gay. If you leave them alone, Mm -hmm. if you start with all of these interventions, then no, you, you are putting them on this path. The numbers are like, I think a hundred percent. I, I would need to look that up, but I think it's like 98 or a hundred percent of the kids will go on to the cross sex hormones, which guarantees sterilization for boys and likely infertility for girls. We're not totally sure on that science yet. Right. It, yeah. It, what's interesting as someone with <clears throat> a ton of hormone problems since being a teenager, I have had such a focus through my life on how important for the health of the body, 
balanced hormones for your sex are to your mental health, to every single aspect of your metabolism, your immune system, your sleep, everything. So I, it's very, very clear to me that messing with that is a high stakes game. And it's always been clear to me, like, oh my gosh, all I've ever wanted to do is just have balanced hormones for my body. You know, that's all I've ever wanted. Yeah. Um, And so that's always been very clear to me how, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me that it's just a simple, oh, well, we'll turn off your hormones and put in new hormones. You know how we change our mind on things. You know how, how impulsive we are. How we think that happiness is going to come from external. I mean, these are all very human things. And fitting into the culture. That's a big thing that I, that I'm very curious about is how, when something, and I, 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 I'm speaking and hearing the people who are going to argue with this, but when something like this becomes so mainstream and trendy, yeah what happens to a child or a teenager's brain on, on wanting to play around with the trends or believing that, you know, or the kind of absolutes of, you know, there's only one cool style when you're a teenager, you haven't seen the styles change. Right. So you would do anything to look like that and be like that and be like that cool person. And, you know, maybe they really are so much happier and I'd be happier if I was like that. I mean, I just know that that's how teen, that's how the teen. Yeah. Yeah. That's how the teen brain works. We are social creatures as humans and teens are very, very driven to belonging to a peer group that's outside of their family. This helps them individuate, helps them leave the nest. It's healthy development. Um, so it's, it's normal for them to want to find themselves, be a little counterculture, but fit in with their group counterculture Mm -hmm. against what the parents are doing. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, it's like, we've been through that. We understand that teens have a limited perspective because we have lived through that in my era. When I was a teen, everybody wanted Pamela Anderson boobs, right? I'm, I'm, I just made the millennial cusp. Um, <laughs> everyone wanted Pamela Anderson boobs and, and Brooke Burke, um, and, uh, breast implants were just kind of standard. Like people were just like, soon as I can, I'm going to do that, you know? And then it's like, if you've, if you've lived long enough, you'll see that there are different trends in right. breasts. Right. <laughs> right? right. And so it's like, maybe some people went larger and then they're like, oh crap, I want to wear that spaghetti strap dress. And now I want small perky boobs where I don't have to wear a bra at all. Right. You know, right. it's like, it's a very human condition. It's a very human condition. And I think that when we see those pictures of the top surgery with the youth, especially when they remove their nipples altogether. It's so it's jarring. Mm -hmm. It's jarring. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's been, it's been, it's been just very, you know, after what almost three years of my own kind of 
WTF is going on in our culture. Cause my counterculture journey, so to speak, started with the diet thing that I realized that the mainstream belief about how to relate to your weight and food was skewed. Yeah. And so that was, you know, that was the beginning and, but everything else was like, I, I was cool with enough, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so now after the one thing after another of, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, there's a, there's a whole other way to look at this. Yeah. Um, it's, it is scary how it, it, the, the thing that's the scariest, you know, all this could be happening. And if you, you could, if you were safe to speak up for what you're seeing, that would be one thing, right? But the scary part is that it's become so polarized. And I, I actually almost feel like it just, the pow- like the power structure just kind of went like that. Like it kind of just yeah. like flipped poles yeah. so quickly. Yeah. And I don't know if I'm off base there, but that's what it feels like. It feels like people are, have a lot of, a lot of social cultural power now and still are kind of acting like they don't or something, but it's hard to kind of figure out, but it's, it's very interesting. And I feel like it really was very fast and sudden. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really destabilizing when you, when you think about it, cause it's like, it's just been kind of a, like a mind fuck. Mm-hmm. It's like, wait, what? We're not allowed to say women and mother anymore. Like what happened to those, those titles being like sacred or, or, um, discriminated against as women, you know? And then it's like, wait, what? Like just a minute ago, we were teaching kids to accept their bodies. Well, that's the thing, right? That's the other thing. And that's the thing that I feel that I have, I have had many therapists write this to me, but again, they don't feel comfortable saying it openly Yeah, that there is this expectation to just affirm, to just affirm with gender specifically. Whereas with so many other things, the understanding is you work through the, the dysmorphia, the dysphoria, you, you know, it's, it's something to, to, be honest about and be yeah. allowed to kind of go through the, the, the therapy process, you know, really yeah. things apart and helping people to come to a peace with mm-hmm. themselves and with what is, and the comparison to eating disorders yeah. that you, you know, if, if someone comes in and they are thin and they say they are fat, you don't say, you don't affirm essentially. Right. Right. You, you right. work, you begin to work through the, the mental health problems yeah. of body dysmorphia, but you're not allowed, you're not even allowed to do that with gender now. Right. Right. I have so many eating disorder therapists message me privately saying like, this is deranged. I don't know how to speak about this. I don't feel safe speaking about this. Um, Here we are telling people to accept their bodies, body acceptance. And that happiness, you know, does not come from the size. Right. Right. 
or the way you look or whatever, you know, and then it's like with the gender stuff, they're being asked to, to have this entirely different message. Right. Um, and yeah, as far as affirming or not affirming, it's a really, really nuanced and delicate dance right now. And depends on what state you're in, mm. depends on what state you're in. And it depends on the case you might make for yourself. If, if you, if somebody complains to your board, that's what's scary. That's what's mm-hmm. scary. Even, I mean, th- so this is happening, right. It, in therapy. And it's also happening in another way with doctors. It's like, you're not allowed to, to actually practice mm-hmm. the way you were taught to practice. And I'm, I'm talking about the gender thing, but also the, all the COVID stuff, like the amount of doctors who don't agree with the way that it's been handled, but again, state by state, California, I think something just passed Mm. in California where you were just not, you were just flat out, not allowed to disagree, not allowed to disagree. Wow. And you can have your license taken away, like immediately. Wow. If you're reported by a, by a, um, patient. Yep. Yep. It's so it's like a gag order. Mm-hmm. And here in California, yes, only a um, client can, you know, report us to our board or whatever. So it's like the, you know, the Twitter mom can threaten all they want, but unless they are our actual clients um, and we all have lawyers and we all have, you know, we have some backing, but yeah. California has become just brutal. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, so coercive with this with the gender topic and I don't follow the COVID topic as closely, but I know as a mom that we are just, we won't let the kids into school unless they have every single CDC scheduled vaccine. Right. right. And so that has really strengthened the homeschool movement in California mm-hmm. because the moms are like, wait, what? Right. Because they didn't think, they didn't think of the market. They didn't think through the market well, because so many California moms are really into health and wellness and natural living. Right. Right. You know, because not long not- ago, yeah. that's what liberalism was. Yeah. That's yeah. The whole, that this is the whole like changing of the polls thing of like, wait, what is, what, what is going on? What are these categories that I'm supposed to be choosing between and like yeah. pledging allegiance to it's yeah. really weird. It's so weird. Like, the, the history writers are going to have some fun with this one in the future. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, but yeah, it's so weird because it was like this demographic, we used to be opposed to allowing big pharma just to inject our children with anything they want, you know, without careful scrutiny. Mm-hmm. And now it seems like the same group or like the same political demographic, they're they're beating you over the head with like, you have to do this. So you're a bad parent. You're a bad citizen. And I mean, yeah. Right. Well, that's, that's what I've noticed that people's desire to be good. People's desire to take care of other people has been in my opinion, taken advantage of and yeah. sort of um, used as a, as a tool to kind of like force this thing. It's, 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 it's so sad because then there's so much fighting, but both sides are fighting for 
what they genuinely believe is for the best of everyone. That's, that's what both sides genuinely believe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's just one that's, uh, I don't know. I can't even, I can't even. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if you're familiar with Lior Sapir. He's Mm-mm. a brilliant mind on, on this gender topic and, and, and legal aspects and, and sort of like, how did we get here? Um, and he describes it as like a toxic empathy. Mm. So it's like our natural inclination, particularly among mothers and among liberals and among women is empathy. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's been like a, it's just, it's, it's just too much of a good thing where it's become toxic. Right. And of course we want to care for kids. Of course we want kids to be well. And it's just, we just have, it's like that has been weaponized by Mm -hmm. the, there's a movement. Yeah. Right. And I mean, I feel like I've seen, and I don't know any of the specifics. And I think the funny thing is, I don't know if anybody really does, but there seems to be a narrative that if you do not follow this affirm and, you know, affirm all I don't even know how to describe it. I don't know what the, the wording is, but gender identity, or if you don't affirm gender identity, you are causing suicide or you are mm-hmm. directly leading to higher suicides. And I feel like that, again, this is a, and I don't know, I don't know exactly where it comes from, but that it feels like that's another way to just, well, no one wants to be the cause of suicide. No one wants, no. we don't want to cause harm, but there, we're able to kind of, I don't know, manipulate the the whole, I don't know. That's I've exactly met- what it is. Right. That's exactly what is it, what it is. It's, it's, um, it's emotional manipulation. It's so wrong. It's unethical coming from providers who have ethics and laws that they need to follow. And we, we don't have, we don't have the studies to say that that is true. Trans identified youth have um, a higher, what's the, I want to make sure I'm saying this properly a higher rate of suicidal ideation than the rest, than, than, than the population that has no mental health conditions. Okay. That's Mm kind of obvious that that's how it would be. But when you look at trans identified youth and suicidal ideation with youth with other mental health disorders, it's not very different. And the actual suicide rates are not high. And we know that at every stage of the transition process, the the risk of suicide remains constant. And we even have some studies that say after transition, the suicide rate goes up. So um, it's emotional manipulation that is not rooted in sound research. And when someone tells you, if you don't do this, I'm going to kill myself. That's not a way to parent. And it's not a way to be a clinician. When youth are truly suicidal, we have ways of helping them. We have ways of increasing their chances of safety 
evidence-based ways. And in nowhere in that evidence, does it say that, that a, a, a youth needs a double mastectomy in order to live right. Right. with healthy breasts. She has right. cancer, different right. story. Right. 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 So, yeah. And what I know we've been go, we went way past an hour, so I will let you go very soon. Oh, that's okay. Um, I'm like, I'm into this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my, so I guess I don't really know the answer to this question, but is there, I, I feel like my, my sense is that there is sort of a push and maybe it's an activist push in the, in the trans or gender fluid. Um, I don't even, I'm not even using the right words because I don't even really know what the categories are of different activist movements, but I feel like there is a push to kind of position gender dysphoria as not a mental health issue. Is that true? Is that kind of what's happening? Oh, absolutely. That's exactly what's happening. So in 2013, in our diagnostic manual, the DSM that we use in the US, um, gender identity disorder was changed to gender dysphoria. So we got rid of the word disorder, mm-hmm. which is very social justice-y. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and now there's a, a push to to possibly change gender dysphoria to just gender incongruence, which doesn't have to have any like clinical significance at all. It's just, you're literally saying wrong brain, wrong body. Let's make it right. Um, It's more of an identity rather than a clinical issue. So yes, there's a push to depathologize gender dysphoria because Pathology is a really awful word, but when something is a disorder in the DSM um, and it needs medical treatment, clinical treatment, I mean, the language that's used is it's, it's like a medical pathology. It's a horrible word, but it's like, if there's not a problem, then you don't need treatment. Right. So again, it does not make sense because if, if gender dysphoria or if trans identification, they're not this, they're not exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. But if if trans identification is not a clinical mental health issue or physical health issue, then why does it need drugs and surgery? If you want cosmetic surgery, cool. Wait till you're an adult and pay for it. Right. Mm-hmm. Cosmetic surgery is not a human right. It's not a civil right, right. you know, you know, I want to be sensitive. Like we all have things we want to change about us, you know, but you can't say something is not a clinical issue. And then in the next breath, demand drugs and surgery for kids. Right. Right. It doesn't work that way. If you say that it's not a mental health condition, fine. Mm-hmm. That's your right to think whatever you want to think about yourself and others. Mm-hmm. But then you can't demand drugs and surgery. Right. You can't say these kids need drugs and surgery. Right. If it's not a clinical healthcare condition. Right. Right. And I'm using the word condition. That's a friendly word. In the clinical word, the word is disorder. You know? Right. We're trying to water things down in my field 
We don't want to be so paternalistic, so pathologizing. And I support all of that. Like I'm part of the neurodiversity movement, all of that. Right. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is when there is a compromise in suffering, when there is a mental health condition, if you say that someone is going to kill themselves, if they don't receive this medical treatment, that is a medical condition. Right. A disorder some will use, right? Mm-hmm. And so we can be as fluffy as we want with the language, but if you don't have something wrong, you don't get treatment in the U.S. Right. Insurance surely is not going to pay for it. Right. You can have elective treatment right on, pay for it, do your thing. Mm -hmm. But if you want to involve clinicians and demand that we do something, Mm -hmm. we are clinicians. And threaten your, you know our license. Right. Yeah. If you want to come in with a belief system, of course, we'll respect your belief system, but you can't make us get on our knees and pray your belief system. That's not how this works. Right. And that's a message that I want people to understand is that we have intellectual autonomy We have freedom of belief, freedom of religion. I will be respectful, but I do not have to say your prayers. Now, I can diagnose, but something has to be wrong to diagnose. Something has to reach a level of this person is really compromised and we need to help them compassionately. But this is a clinical condition. And there are different ways to approach clinical conditions. That's another conversation, but clinicians, it's normal for us to say, "Mm, I wouldn't approach it that way. Right. You know? So everyone thinks the the mainstream thinks gender dysphoria, clinical condition. This is the trend. The the gender transition is the intervention that we're going to use. Well, no, not all clinicians agree on that. And when we have clinical conditions, there's always competing modalities for how to help that person Mm -hmm. with the condition. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's such a good point. Yeah. That's such a good point. There, especially in mental health, there's not, there's usually not just one, okay, well, you have this, it's this, there are all of these different modalities. We have... That is part of our culture in the mental health and the, the, the medical science field is that doctors or clinical providers, we sit at a table, literally, we sit at a table and we consult and argue and debate about the best way to approach this case. Mm-hmm. We call it case consultation, mm-hmm. group consultation. And it's normal. I can show you the books. There are all these different modalities for helping the one condition of depression or the one condition of anxiety. Now, I'm not a healthcare provider, but I imagine doctors also have different approaches, which is why you go and get a second opinion. Mm-hmm. Right. Right? <laughs> right? Right. These are all really basic things. Yeah. So yeah. this idea of there being one you know, monopolized way to do things is a new idea. It's a radical idea. Yeah. And it's, and it's scary. It's, it's becoming scary. 
yeah culturally and you coming from the the eating and body world you probably know that things like anorexia and bulimia are very social contagions in the female adolescent world yes yes and this is happening with the trans stuff too yeah that's yeah. such a good point and i actually when we were talking i was i was like almost laughing about like i can almost see a twisted world like because i think things are getting so kind of convoluted i can almost see the twisted world where in 10 years like having an eating disorder is like neurodiversity right right and yeah. like this is just who i am um, we're getting close to that i know and we're getting very me. close that kind of thing really scares me because i it sounds like satire but it's the kind of thing that Yeah. It's part of ableism. It's part of the movement against ableism because ableism says we just accept all disorders as just another way of being. It's it's very neurodiversity as well. Right. Right. But then there, there is this question of, okay, well, where, where is the line? Like, where do we draw the line as a society? Because yeah, things get, things can get twisted really, really easily. Yeah. Mary Weiss is talking about this a lot. Oh yeah. 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 She did a great interview with Freddie DeBauer. DeBauer. I don't know. It's, it's really good. It's about mental illness and, and not accepting all this stuff as normal. Right. Well, that's an interesting thing too. The, and again, it's like, I can see, I see the benefit, right? Mm -hmm. I see the kindness. I see how helpful it can be to, feel okay and not feeling okay because there is that extra pressure of oh my gosh I'm such a you know a waste of space because I have this problem so it is very helpful to 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 quote unquote normalize oh absolutely and that's what I that's what I do with autism and it's actually unkind to not help these kids with therapy and in order to get therapy something has to be wrong right something has to be like challenging and off Right. You know, I think that there's a middle way that we're just, we're not talking about. Oh my goodness. How do I could talk to you forever. I'm sure we have plenty more to talk about, Yes, but maybe we'll do a part two sometime. I'd love that. Thank you so, so much for sharing. I'm sure that you're going to give a lot of people things to think about and things that they have just been craving someone to say. Will you tell everyone where they can find you for more? Yes. Yes. Um, I'm very active on Instagram. My website is tavajohnson.com. My substack is tava.substack.com. And if people want to reach out and, and share their thoughts on our interview, they can email me, which they can find through my website, the contact on my website. Great. And I will link to all of those. So they're easy to find in the show notes. Awesome. But thank you so, so much. Thank you, Caroline. It was really great chatting with you. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Tava. Um, I cut out her, (laughs) I cut out the little audio where she actually said her Instagram handle because she had, has changed it since used to be neuro curious therapist. Now it is rebel parents. So I will link to that and I will link to her, um, website and her Substack. You can find her in the show notes. 
Um, you can also find links to Microbalance Health products in the show notes as well. Um, and other than that, I will be back as soon as I can. I do have some guests lined up. I do intend to um, to do a lot more podcasting, but I know I've been saying that for a long time. So if you don't believe me by now, I don't blame you. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I will talk to you soon. And again, um, like I said in the beginning, this podcast is feeding out through Substack. And Substack is where you can get more than just this podcast. You can get my posts, my free posts, my paid posts, my audio for the posts that just goes to paid subscribers in a private podcast feed if you want more audio from me. Um, And it's a really great way to support my work and to support the podcast as well, becoming either a free or paid subscriber. Obviously, becoming a paid subscriber is how to support um, financially, and I appreciate everybody who does. Um, But even just becoming a free subscriber is a great way to be able to stay in touch with you and send you new posts and episodes straight to your email. All right. Okay. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you soon.